Now this morning, as I preach, just a forewarning, uh, point two may get a little bit cumbersome or complicated, <laughs> but we will, by God's grace, make our way through it, and if you're confused, then that's my fault, not God's fault. My favorite verse, I think, at least right now, we'll see when we're done going through the book of Hebrews. I've never preached through the entire book, but I have preached different sections. But my favorite section is probably, Hebrew, at least right now, is Hebrews 4, 14 through 16. Hebrews 4, 14 through 16. We're going to be looking at, at the book as a whole and doing an introduction. But to get started before I pray, let's look at this passage. Hebrews 4, verse 14. Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in all things, as we are, yet without sin. Therefore, let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace, so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in the time of need. Lord, as we now come to you, not simply or only to sing to you, but now we come actively to listen to your word. We come with humility and we desire even now to come to the throne of grace and pray that you would give us this this mercy this grace and this help that's listed here in Hebrews 4.16, Lord. We need your grace, your mercy, and your help to hear your word, to understand it, to, to preach it, and to do it, Lord. And so we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. My concern again, and it is a growing concern of mine, for myself personally, but for us as a church, the more that we preach through the books of the Bible, the more accountable we are. I think Pilgrim at least has been through Romans, First Peter, Philippians, Joshua, James, uh, Ecclesiastes, Genesis, Ephesians. And Bible study, First and Second Thessalonians, Obadiah, <laughs> Habakkuk, Nahum, and and more. Second Kings. So the uh, many Psalms now. Psalm twenty six is that? Psalm thirty, Proverbs sixteen, other Proverbs. That's wonderful. That's great. Praise God. However. The more that we go through books of the Bible, one, the more accountable we are. But at least for me as a preacher, maybe for you a listener, there there can be this almost, okay, we've gone through that book, yes. What's next? What's another book that we can tackle? Instead of maybe, and again, maybe I'm preaching to myself, instead of saying, how else can I change? How can this book impact my life and change me? How can it tackle me and transform me? My temptation can be, or it can stop, my desire can stop with, I want to understand this book, period. Instead of, I want to understand this book and then get closer to Jesus and have him transform my life. So this morning, then, my question is this, as we start, this is the main point of this introduction How can we approach the book of Hebrews? So it's not just a 2,000-year-old piece of literature, but approach it how it really is, the life-transforming Word of God. How can we approach the book of Hebrews? So it's not just a piece of ancient, religious, even Christian literature, but how can we approach it in such a way that it transforms our life because it is the living an abiding word of God, as it says in Hebrews 4.12. How can we do this? So there's three approaches this morning we're going to look at that will help us to approach God's word in such a way that we approach it as it is, the powerful, 
living word of God that's sharper than a double-edged sword. That's how we want to approach it. These three approaches, I, I will name them. The first approach will be receive God's message for you. Receive it as God's message for you personally. Second, understand who the main author of the book of Hebrews is. And then the third approach will be own it and let it own you. You own it and then let it own you. So let's look at this first approach. And that is receive God's message for you. Welcome it. Embrace it. Oh, wait. I've got mail. Excuse me. Do you, do you remember when at times we would say stuff like that? It used to be, I think there was even a movie, I've got mail. Bing, bing. And we might get very excited that we got an email and our email account. Now we have like 15,000 <laughs> messages, emails in our account, and that doesn't get us excited anymore. Some of you may have like 30,000 because you've never deleted them. They're, they're still in there. And then it was text messages. I'm getting text. It can even be likes now. Maybe if you post a picture, and I've done it, and I, I get excited. I, I post a picture of something that, that I've done, and if I get one like, yes. Oh, wait, that was myself. Okay, I, I, I can't count that. But the more communications that we get from others that are to us, we can, as long as they're positive, we can get excited and hopeful and encouraged. That, that's not necessarily wrong, but the whole Bible... The book of Hebrews is God's text, God's email, God's message to you. Better than a text message, better than an email, better than, do they have them anymore, better than a, a postcard is the book of Hebrews. God is speaking to us. And so there are several components then that I want to bring out about this, about receive I'm not talking about necessarily my sermons, but receive the truth from Hebrews, that the text of Hebrews and its truth, embrace it and receive it as more important than getting an email or a text from one that you adore, a human that you might endure. Even more than that, the, the God of the universe, that one that we just sang songs to, wrote Hebrews to you. So then let's look at these different components of receiving it. First, it is a word of exhortation. Receive it as a word of exhortation. And this is not something I am making up. It's something that the text itself says in Hebrews chapter 13, verse 22. The text states, But I urge you, brethren, bear with this word of exhortation, for I have written to you briefly. <laughs> Hebrews is a long epistle. But yet he says, I've written to you briefly. W would you like to see him write a long letter? <laughs> I've written to you briefly. But God's grace, this will be a brief sermon. Bear with this word of exhortation. Now this word of exhortation, this term exhortation, you know, it's almost the same word as the helper. Pericles. Parakalao would be the verb. Para means alongside, and kletes is the idea of helper. You have the noun there in verse 22 with this word of exhortation. Exhortation is the noun. But you have the verb also in verse 22 when he says, but I urge you. Exhortation is that word parakaleis, parakaleitos, the verb is, it can be I exhort you I, or I urge you. It just depends upon the context, whether they will make it stronger with exhort. If it's a little bit more mild, then they may translate it, I, I urge you. But basically, the word means anything from comfort to correction. Any, depending upon the context, from comfort 
to correction. But the semantic core, the, the semantic core of the word, its root meaning is the idea of calling forth a response. You, you comfort somebody because you want them to respond with encouragement, to have their heart to take a step out of despondency and despair to gladness. If you correct somebody, you want them, you're requesting them to change a course of action. That's the idea of this word when it says a word of, of exhortation. That's the idea of the word. And historically, the word exhortation came to mean a sermon. For example, in 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 13, Paul tells Timothy, be addicted to the reading of the word, to the reading and the exhortation. At first, it was part of a sermon, but then it became even known as a term for a sermon. Even 2 Timothy 4.2, preach the word, in season or out of season. Reprove, rebuke, and exhort. And so this word came known to be either part of a sermon or a sermon itself that would give correction or comfort. But if you keep looking at verse 22, note also what he says. It's not just this is exhortation. This is a word of exhortation. There are times when I might tell my children, I might say, Ellie, I want to have a word with you. I might say to Thomas, Thomas, I want to have a word with you. And maybe it's one of you at church. I might say, I want to have a word with you. Normally that can have... (laughs) Tones of correction, but it doesn't have to be. It means I want to sit down with you and directly talk to you and to give you some content to either correct you or to comfort you or both. Whatever the occasion and the need is, I want to call forth a response and have a word with you. But word is kind of a euphemism to mean I want to have a discussion with you. And here for the book of Hebrews, this writer is basically saying, I want to have a type of a dialogical monologue with you through this written sermon. And that's how the book of Hebrews has come to be known throughout the ages as a written sermon. Not like an epistle. If you take the epistles and compare it to Hebrews, it's a little bit different. And we'll go over that later and see that. Hebrews is more of a written sermon with a lot of sermonic elements. It's basically a dialogical monologue, like a sermon. And so then we approach it that way. Here's God, and he's preaching to me Jesus in the book of Hebrews. It's a little bit different than Paul's epistles or even Peter's epistles. It's basically a sermon track to the church of Jesus Christ. Now, second, and we're talking about receiving God's message. First, we said it is this exhortation, meaning comfort and correction, and it's like a sermon, basically. God wrote a sermon to me, and it's called, we call it Hebrews. We should probably say, Christ is, and we'll talk about that in just a few moments. It's not only a word of exhortation, but it has significant and explicit portions of Christ, of, the, of these Christ dynamics that are in the epistle. Uh, the epistle starts with verses 1 through 4, an incredible section on who Christ is. It's, we'll look at it next week, it's massive and it's huge and it says so much about Jesus. I, I don't want to preach it too much because we'll look at it next week. But verses 1 through 4, verse 2, and his son, he appointed heir of all things. The world was made through him. He's the radiance of his glory, exact representation of his nature, upholds all things by the word of his power. And then throughout the book of Hebrews, the writer unfolds who Christ is in a way that is wonderful and instructive for us. And then when Hebrews begins to wind down, chapter 12, basically, the book starts with a graphic section about Christ, very detailed, and then when the book winds down, it brings us again to Christ. Therefore, since we have, chapter 12, verse 1, Therefore, since we have so great a cloud of witnesses surrounding us, let us also lay aside every encumbrance 
and the sin which so easily entangles us and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame. And I sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. In a very real sense, it's a little bit, in some ways, like the book of Revelation. The book of Revelation is a, an unveiling of who Jesus is. That's really what the book of Revelation is truly about. Here, this sermon of Hebrews is primarily, primarily, mainly, unveiling who Jesus Christ really is in a certain context. Now, we can also say this, and this is when, if you've got that little outline, that you can look at that outline, and I have it somewhere, I think, yes. I gave you a little outline of the book, and this will help us to see even more the, the message of Hebrews, and its overall theme and even structure. And so if you have this little outline, Hebrews outline, you can look at it and just look at it and we'll look at the the structure first and then maybe perhaps what the, tentatively what the main theme is. Chapter 1, verses 1 through 3. Jesus Christ is superior to the prophets. That's chapter 1, verses 1 through 3. You can see, God, after he spoke long ago to the fathers and the prophets in many portions in many ways, in these last days, he has spoken to us and his son. That's how it starts off. Jesus is superior to the prophets. And then in chapter 1, verse 4, all the way to chapter 2, verse 18, it's basically saying that Jesus is superior to the angels. Chapter 1, verse 5, to which of the angels did he ever say, you are my Son. And it goes through that whole section declaring that Jesus is superior, more wonderful, more marvelous. Jesus is better than angels. Quintessential spiritual beings, right? The, you could say the, the epitome of spiritual beings are Seraphim and, and Cherophim, you know, Michael and Gabriel. Better is Jesus. I've known people that prayed to the archangel Michael. That's blasphemy. <laughs> Jesus is better than Michael, than 10 billion Michaels archangel. Jesus Christ is superior, infinitely the best above all angels and demons. Jesus Christ, not only that, he's superior to leaders. You can look at chapter 3, chapter 4. And again, there's there's much in all these sections. The, the, this is a broad outline. In chapter 3, all the way to 4.13, though not only or exclusively, but primarily it brings up two main characters from the Old Testament, Moses and Joshua. Two great leaders. And Moses was even a prophet. But better is Jesus Christ. The better leader than Moses and Joshua is Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is superior than them. Jesus Christ is the best. There's no leader there will ever be or could be as great a leader as Jesus Christ. Chapter 4, verses 14, all the way, all the way to chapter 10, 18, a very lengthy section and... The main substance of the book is basically saying, again, summarizing, that Jesus Christ is superior to earthly priests and, and, and the priesthood, to the priest and their works. That's the main idea of that section. Jesus Christ is the best. He is better. He is more wonderful. He is more superior than Aaron, than Melchizedek. Then all the sacrifices, they all pointed to him and, and typified, typified him. Don't drift away from Christ, stay with Christ. And then chapter 10, verse 19, all the way to the end of the book, 
applies the superiority of Christ. Since Jesus Christ is the best there is, since he is better than anything and anybody, then stick with him. And in chapters 10, 19 through 13, 17, there are many issues that are talked about and applied as it's seen through the superiority of Christ. So, receive God's message for you. What does that mean? What am I saying? It is a sermon, and the substance of the sermon is that Jesus Christ is the best there is. Better than anybody, better than anything, is Jesus Christ, the Lord, the Savior. Focus on Him, follow Him, stick with Him. Now, third, as we're talking about receive God's message for you, there is this reoccurring theme. So you'll have exposition or elaboration on who Christ is, and then you have these little warning passages. Like, for example, you have chapters 1 and part of 2, and then chapter 2, 3, it says how we escape if we neglect so great a salvation. And then you have more elaboration, you have more explanation, more type of a dialogical monologue, like a sermon. But then you have verse 12 of chapter 3, which says, Take care, brethren, that there not be any one of you an evil, unbelieving heart that falls away from the living God, but encourage one another day after day, as long as it is still called today. And so you have this throughout the book. You even have it in chapter 4 which talked about Moses and Joshua and the Sabbath rest. And then in chapter 4, 15, in 14, verse 14, hold fast our confession. And even chapter 4, verse 16, let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace. So you have these sections which explain Christ. He's better than the prophets. He's better than the angels. He's better than Moses. He's better than, than Joshua. In light of that, Encourage one another. Draw near to the throne of grace. Don't let your hearts be hardened. Don't neglect this this great salvation. And it goes this way throughout the whole book. You even have chapter 10, verse 22. Let us draw near with a sincere faith. Or verse 23 of chapter 10. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope. Even 24. Let us consider how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds and not forsake in our own assembly Together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another all the more as you see the day drawing near. But even it brings up the very difficult times that these people were facing. Look at chapter 10, verse 32. But remember the former days when after being enlightened, you endured a great conflict of suffering. Partly by being made a public spectacle, they were being made fun of through reproaches and tribulations, and partially by becoming sharers of those who were so treated. For you showed sympathy to the prisoners and accepted joyfully the seizure of your property, knowing that you have, a, that you have for yourselves a better possession and a lasting one. So these were people that at least professed Christ. They had made verbal commitments to Christ, and many of them had made such a commitment to Christ that they stood up for Christ with others that were being persecuted, and as a result of being persecuted, they were having their personal property stolen. Maybe by the government. They're being persecuted for Christ. And so then they're called not to go back to an old religion that was more safe, but rather to stick with Christ, because that was a better possession and a lasting one. And then after chapter 10, to address that, chapter 11 talks about living by what? Faith. There are times when we can think of the book of Hebrews, I think, of being very complicated, maybe of being very confusing because of all the sacrificial offerings that are in chapters 6 all the way to 10. We'll look at those passages, but really the book of Hebrews is how to live this enduring faith during very difficult times. Because these professing believers were being tempted to 
They're being persecuted and they're being tempted to leave Christ and go back to at least a type of Judaism where it would be fine to be Jewish and to offer sacrifices. Apparently, the place that they were living at, we don't know exactly where they were living, but the place they were living at, that was fine. But to stay with Christ was not fine. And so this writer, God, through this writer, is writing to them and telling them that they need to endure with Christ, for Christ, by faith. So let me then talk about this fourth point, this message, God's message for you. We've said it's a word of exhortation. It has these Christ dynamics. Recurring theme, practical theme, but even it's foundational for life. And we're just going to mention this briefly. And I've already mentioned this some, so we don't have to talk about it too much. But you can see in chapters 12 and 13, very practical themes. Just look at chapter 13. Talks about prisoners. Talks about marriage, chapter 13, verse 4. Talks about money and fear. Even chapter 2 talks about fear. Talks about church life in verse 7 and following. And so it talks about prayer in chapter 4, verse 16. So there's many, living by faith, all of chapter 11. So there's many practical messages in the book of Hebrews. Even the idea of hope, the anchor of our soul, hope, uh, Hebrews six nineteen. But let me summarize what I would say, at least initially, is the main theme of the book of Hebrews. Now, it's not wrong to say this. I'm not trying to be critical of others, but many books and commentaries will say Jesus is better. He's better than this, better than this, better than that. Yes, absolutely. But I think we can even do better than saying better. Jesus is not just better. Like, dark chocolate is better than white chocolate. Now, I love dark chocolate raspberries. Even the best. Jesus is not just better in comparison. He's at the absolutely best there is, better than anything and better than anyone. But let me summarize it this way. That is the, the main primary theme of the book of Hebrews. Christ Jesus is the best there is, and you and I had better cling to Christ for real, eternal blessing. This lasting possession. Christ and all that heaven has for us. Because Jesus Christ is the best there is, we'd better cling to him. That's one way to look at it. Another way is you could say the superiority of Christ is a clarion call for clinging to Christ. This clarion call that calls us to cling to Christ. Another way we could say is don't drift away from Christ to something or someone. Christ is the best there is. Don't drift away to something else or someone else because Christ is the best there is. You could say, since Christ is the best there is, focus on him, follow him, and never forsake him because Christ is the best there is. Christ is superior to everyone else and everything else, so stick with him. Christ Jesus is superior to everything else and everyone else, so always stick with him. So that's just very initially, that's the message of the book of Hebrews. The message of the book of Hebrews is not getting into all the different types of sacrifices there is. If we're not careful, we can get lost in all that. Rather, the main message of the book of Hebrews is that since Jesus is the best there is, better than anything or or everybody else, trust him and stick with him. So we need to embrace that. Second, second main point, the second approach. And this is when it may get a little bit complicated. If it sounds complicated, then it's because, again, I'm not being clear. But the second approach is understand who the main author of the book of Hebrews is. Now, understand that point. Understand not just who the author is. Understand who the main author of the book of Hebrews is. 
the main author of the book of Hebrews is who? God. <laughs> okay. So that's how we have to come to any book of the Bible. But when we come to this book of Hebrews, this letter to the Hebrews, we come to it, we receive it, we receive it because we understand it to be written by God. Now, having said that, first, who is the human author? Because God did not drop us the Bible. He did drop the Ten Commandments. But other than that, it wasn't that God just sent down the numeric and standard Bible. And all of a sudden, it sits in front of us. So how do we have this book of, of Hebrews? Well, who was the human author? Well, Hebrews is a little bit different. In one sense, it's like Mark. Mark doesn't say, I, Mark, following Peter along, decided to write this. But when you look at the book of Hebrews, it doesn't say anywhere who wrote it. Why then is it in the Bible? And so that's briefly what we want to talk about, is who is the human author? Because throughout church history, many different people have been suggested. Uh, of course, Paul. Again, you, there's no author that's listed. So how do we know it's in the Bible? You know, there are Catholic Bibles. Do they have all the same books of the Bible that we have? No, they don't. So how do we know Hebrews should be in the Bible? Your table of contents and your Bible, is it inspired? No, it's not. So how do we know Hebrews should be in the Bible? And so that's really what we want to talk about. Now, Paul was considered to be an author early on. So was Apollos. So was Barnabas. And so was, not early on, but later on, Priscilla. Also was Luke, early on. Now, Calvin and Luther differed. One thought it was Apollos, and I think the other thought it was Barnabas or, or Luke. I, I've forgotten which. But you've had early church theologians, and you had medieval, and you have Reformation, and you have modern theologians and commentaries, and everybody has something different. Paul, Luke. Those are the main two, and then Barnabas and Apollos. Now, Paul was considered to be pr the primary author for a long time until close toward the Reformation, and then others began to suggest ah, it's probably somebody else. So just briefly, we want to consider this, and then we'll go into, well, why is it the Bible? Well, why is it in the Bible? Because there's nowhere here where it says an apostle wrote it. But first, who is the human author? Number one, no author lists in any manuscript. So we have many manuscripts uh, of the Bible and different manuscripts of different portions of the Bible. And when you have the manuscripts which have Hebrews, there is no place in any of those manuscripts where it says, I, Barnabas, or I, Apollos, or I, Priscilla, or I, Paul. You just don't. It's not there. Second, and we've already said this, but church history is not united at all. Church history is united, for example, almost absolutely united, for example, on the book of Mark or, or, or Luke, right? There's not much debate at all on those, but there's always been debate on who really, who is the human author of Hebrews. The church has not been united. Now, many times people will say this. You can read many commentaries. I've read many commentaries that will say, well, Origen, do you guys know who Origen is? He was a church father, church theologian, great mind, did a lot of foundational work for, for scripture and theology. He wasn't perfect, but really a, a very astute mind and was a believer. And so many people will quote Origen and say, well, Origen said God only knows. And so then it becomes a kind of a cliche. He wrote the book of Hebrews. Origen, the church father, said... God only knows. So all I did, you know, you, you can go online and just start looking up uh, Origins Works. And you can search for Origin and uh, the book of Hebrews. 
And it's very interesting. For example, and this is Latin. I can't pronounce Latin, so forgive me. The Principis One, Origen, who has... I read so many commentaries, many, many, many commentaries that said Origen believed that nobody could know who wrote the book of Hebrews. So then Origen says, quote, and therefore I think it's sufficient to quote this testimony of Paul from the epistle to the Hebrews. Their Principis... Uh, three, two, three point two point four, and the Apostle Paul warns us in Hebrews two one. The Principis four one thirteen, and another epistle also referring to the tabernacle, he Paul mentions and then he quotes Hebrews eight five. Moreover, in the epistle to the Hebrews, discoursing of those who belong to the circumcision, Paul writes, for Paul openly says of them, and he quotes Hebrews eight five. And it goes on and on and on. So there, there are many places where Origen said that Paul wrote the book of Hebrews. However, be careful when you quote church fathers. Because church fathers can believe many different things all at the same time. And we can too. So this is also what Origen said. I, I don't have the dates of these. I, I couldn't find the exact dates of when these were said. But here's what he says, quote, and this is from Eusebius, who's quoting Origen. So who knows what he said? But this is Eusebius quoting Origen. Eusebius was a church historian, early church historian. Quote, but as for myself, this is Origen, if I were to state my own opinion, I would say that the thoughts are the apostles but that the style and composition belong to the one who called to mind the apostles' teaching, and as it were, made short notes of what his master said. If any church therefore holds this epistle of Paul's, you caught that, (laughs) let it be commended for this also. For not without reason have the men of old handed it down as Paul's, but who wrote the epistle and truth God knows. Yet the account of which has reached us it's twofold. Some saying that Clement, who was the bishop of Romans, wrote the epistle, and others that it was Luke who wrote the gospel and Acts. So there's one sense that Origen is saying, I think it's Paul, but perhaps it's Clement or Luke. <laughs> but he appears to be saying that if you pressed him, because in his quotes, he'll say Paul and Hebrews. <laughs> okay? But what, what I am bringing up is when you have something like this and you read, or somebody quotes a church father, you should probably look that up because that church father may or may not have been saying exactly what this quote is saying. So it appears origin of the church father thought it, probably Paul, but maybe even Paul through Luke or through Clement. Okay. Now, we're still going on. Okay, there, There's a purpose for this. Now, one of the issues is, is style. Is style. And so people that reject Pauline authorship or even Luke authorship will say it's an issue of style. Just from what you know of Hebrews, how would it not, how would it not like be Paul's writings? And Paul's epistles, what is that one phrase you see over and over and over again? In Christ, in Christ, in Christ. So Hebrews it doesn't have that. Also, Paul, normally when he writes a letter, he starts with a prayer. You, you don't have that either. <laughs> Paul then even says, is it in Galatians? Note with the note, I am signing my name to this and I'm writing with my own unique style so that you know it's me that's writing this. And so Paul seems to make an emphasis of his apostleship, not in a bad way, but to clarify that he's the actual one that's writing this epistle. And so you don't see that in the book of Hebrews. Okay. Now, for, for Luke, some would say it can't be Luke because the book of Hebrews has a lot about Old Testament Judaism. So it can't be about Luke. Luke was a doctor. He was really smart. Hebrews is considered to be eloquent Greek. And so, yes, Luke could have written that way. He was a doctor. But, you know, he 
he wouldn't know Hebrew religion. And also, Luke's style, if, if you look at the Gospel of Luke and Acts and compare those to Hebrews, different, totally different style. So what do you do with thoughts of this? Well, just very, again, very quickly, and hope I'm not boring you, but I think this might help. How many of you have read C.S. Lewis? Have you read C.S. Lewis? Have you read Chronicles of Narnia? Yes. Have, have you read Problem of Pain? If you got both those books and read them one after another, but they didn't have the author on the book, you wouldn't think they were from the same writer. Have you read Mere Christianity? Yes. Completely different writing style than the screw tape letters. Same author. You would have no comprehension. Have you read Chronicles of Narnia? And then if you read That Hideous Strength, That Hideous Strength, who has read That Hideous Strength? What? It's a sci-fi, science fiction by C.S. Lewis. It has a floating head. It's really odd and weird. And if you compare that to The Lion, The Witch, and The Wardrobe, you would never think it was the same writer. Completely different styles. Uh, second writer. How many have read Lord of the Rings? Oh, my gosh. You haven't read... How many of you have read The Similarian? Yes. How many of you... Okay. How many of you read The Lays of Berryland? I, too, have read The Lays of Berryland. Yes, but if you look at each of these writings, Tolkien, his narrative, is not the same as the Lays of Berryland. Different style. And so you can have the same author, or even the same speaker, have different styles. Jesus, he would preach the Sermon on the Mount, but that style was different than the parables. Would you say, oh, different person? Oh. It's the occasion and the purpose of the writer, of the speaker, speaker that can change the style. So what I'm saying is that style alone does not determine who wrote it. It's the purpose and the occasion of the writer, Shakespeare, right? It all depends. Writing a love letter to my wife would be different than me writing a letter to my insurance company. But I'm the same person. So I'm saying that to say we have to be careful about arguments about style. What I would say is if you look at Hebrews chapter 2, verse 3, it says, after is it the first spoken through the Lord, it was confirmed to us by those who heard. God also testifying with them, both by signs and wonders and by various miracles and by gifts of the Holy Spirit to his own will. It seems in chapter 2, verse 3 and 4, it seems that this writer is saying that he's not an apostle. After it was the first spoken through the Lord, it was confirmed to us by those who heard. But the apostle Paul had face-to-face dialogue with Jesus. Now, I'm not being dogmatic at all. But if I was forced to to choose, I would probably say what Origen said, that it could have been like Mark. Mark, it's generally understood, was a type of a prophet, Ephesians 2.20, and was heavily heavily influenced by Paul, I mean, by, by Peter. Peter through Mark. And so I would say... It very well could have been Paul through Luke. That Luke already was a prophet, right? Because he wrote the Gospel of Luke and Acts. However, I, I don't think we can know with any certainty. And that's why I think you have theologians and professors today. For example, A.T. Robinson, the massive Greek text on Greek grammar this thick. He was alive during the Civil War era, during that time. Most of the Greek grammars today are based upon his work. A.T. Robinson word pictures. Everybody should get those and, and use that. Very helpful. And it's written so everybody can understand it. He says nobody can know with any certainty. Uh, Al Mohler. Nobody can really know with any certainty. Uh, one of the foremost 
Greek manuscript guys today that teaches on the canon and everything, uh, Michael Kruger says, you can't say with certainty. Nobody really knows, not with any certainty. If somebody pushed me, I would say probably uh, the idea of Paul through Luke, like Peter through Mark. But then the question is then, it's full then for me, is, okay, fine. But why is it still in the Bible? (laughs) And I think that's important. Because the church is saying today, many theologians and commentaries are saying that, you know, I, I think it's Luke, I think it's Apollos, I think it's Barnabas, I think it's Paul, but you really can't know. Then why is it in the Bible? Right? So then briefly, I just want to go over that. Just just very briefly. And that is, it's in the Bible because of inspiration. Not because the church decides the Bible is inspired, but God decides it's inspired. God produced a book. That's what inspiration means. So it's not the idea that the church determines the canon. It's not the idea that the church determines the canon, but the church discovers the, the canon. It's not that the Bible determines this book and this book and this book should be part of Scripture, but this book should not. But rather, God determines, and then the church discovers that. What do I mean by that? There is a sense in which... Think of Jeremiah, even uh, Elisha. But think of Jeremiah and Isaiah. When he preached, did the people say, oh, we love it. Yes, yes, we want your word. Thank you, Jeremiah. Yes, yes. Awesome. Praise God. Praise God. Hallelujah. Is that how the people responded to Jeremiah? No. (laughs) They threw him in a pit. Isaiah. They would say, we love you, Isaiah. You're awesome. We're going to have a whole blog page about you and have a conference. Is that what they did? No, they took Isaiah and they sold him in two. But their message was God's message, and it was so powerful and so life-transforming that the believers of that day and age could do nothing else but submit to it and bow down, not to Jeremiah and Isaiah, but to the word of the Lord and say, this is the word of God. The word of God won over their hearts. And that's even what happened at the book of Hebrews. Is that in the east, from Jerusalem and east, people were, this is divinely inspired from God. Look at what it's saying by about Christ. Look at how it's affecting our, our hearts and transforming our very lives. And it's consistent with the very word of God. And the West, from Roman on, we're like, you know, we're, we're going to take our time and, and think about it for a while. Like with James and Revelation and Second Peter, when those were first written and being passed along, the church didn't go, oh, yes, oh, yes, oh, yes, okay, yes. Rather, they would take James and Second Peter and Revelation and, okay, we're going to pray about this. We're not going to be hasty. We're going to think and see. Because it, it doesn't say, I, Paul. <laughs> so, it's, it's talking like Scripture. And then gradually, the Word of God presses its, its heart and prevails over the church. So then the church surrenders to it. Now, there's a good book that talks more about this. I don't have time. There's a good book called A General Introduction to the Bible by Geisler and Nix, N-I-X. Two people, Geisler and Nix. Uh, get that and, and read it. But very early on in the third century, it was included in the Codex Sinaiticus. Codex means a book. It's like an old-fashioned book. Very early, third or fourth century. And it was there. It was part of the Bible. And it was right after... The book of Romans? It was in the middle of the Pauline letters in between Second Thessalonians and the pastoral epistles. There was this papyrus, this, this manuscript that was made out of papyrus called the Chester Beatty Papyrus about 200 A.D. 
and it was listed as part of the New Testament books. So what I am saying is that it's not so much that the church says, okay, we'll take this book, we won't take that book. There is discussion about it, but it's not, it's more than just like this magistrate of really important pastors and popes deciding this book, not this book. But rather, over the course of time, is that God's word wins over people's hearts and humbles them, and you see God's word Different, these different books working in people's lives and hearts, and it's consistent with God's word. If you ever read the Hippocrypha or the Gnostic writings, I'll say, it, once you read like the Gospel of Thomas, then you realize, okay, yes, absolutely not inspired, <laughs> not inspired, because either it's false doctrine or Jesus is like an eighty-foot figure, and so then you just take those and say, yeah, this is not biblical. It shouldn't be in the Bible. So I hope I'm again being being clear that there's much more to look at here. But I'd say read Nix and read Geisler, or you can talk to Brad or me afterwards, and we can talk more about it. But ultimately, this is where I would say that God wrote this in Second Peter chapter one, verses twenty and twenty-one. But know this first of all that no prophecy of Scripture is a matter of one's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever made by an act of human will, but men moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. Hebrews is in the Bible because it's inspired. God produced it. And it won over people's hearts and saved them and transformed them and and points us to Christ. So who wrote the book of Hebrews? God did. And it wasn't the church that ultimately determined to put it in the canon. It was placed in the canon because they discovered, they didn't determine, they discovered it was inspired by God, produced by God. Now, number three, and we'll look at this quickly. Number three is own it and let it own you. How to get the most out of the book of Hebrews. And I'm going to go very quick with this. Okay, and I've already, because I've already talked about some of this. Number one, stop saying it's too complicated. The most complicated part I just went over, okay? We won't talk about that again. We can talk about it afterwards. It's not that complicated. Even chapter 6 is not that complicated. Chapter 6 has puzzled many many people. But chapter 6 is basically saying that, look, you got to be really careful. If you profess faith in Christ and seek to follow Christ and then reject Christ, that's a dangerous place to be in. If you express faith in Jesus and, and you've read the Bible and studied the Bible, the Bible and been of God's people and, and then reject Christ, you're in a very dangerous place. Okay? That's the most complicated place in the book of Hebrews. We'll talk about that. Stop saying it's too complicated. Number two, come to church. Come to church. You're all, everybody's here, but maybe you're listening to this because maybe you're at home. Maybe you want to watch football. There could be all kinds of reasons. Maybe you're on the other side of the world in India and you're not going to church. Go to church. Why? Because Hebrews 10.24 says, let's consider how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds, not forsaking our own assembling together, as is the habit of some. Go to church. You don't have to go to this church, but go to a church. Maybe you're you're listening online and sometimes... You go to church, sometimes you go to pilgrim, sometimes you don't, sometimes you go to other church. Find a church that's biblical and go to it consistently. But if you want to get the most out of Hebrews, you don't have to be here every single Sunday. I'm not here every single Sunday. But be consistent with coming on Sunday to learn from the book of Hebrews. Get over online listening. Move past that. Get over that. Move past that. It's time. Go get over online listening. Show up in person. Number three, ask God to open your eyes so that you can understand. I, all throughout the days when I'm studying, I have to say, God, open my eyes. I don't understand. Open my eyes. How do I know this? How can I understand this? How can I communicate this? Lord, help me. Psalm 119. Psalm 119 is what I pray very often. Verse 18 Open my eyes that I may behold wonderful things from your law. 
Open my eyes, Lord. God, open. I, I want to understand it. Help me to understand it, Lord. Verse 27 from Psalm 119. Make me understand the way of your, your precepts. You can even say, pray for me. God, help Tom. He needs your help. He doesn't get it. Help him to understand it and communicate it clearly. Pray for me. My mom does, right? Lisa's mom. She'll pray. It was a, two weeks ago on, on a way to church. She uh, called, answered the phone, and then she sang me happy birthday, and then she prayed I'd have God's anointing when I preach so that I could be clear. Thank you, mom. That's a great mom. Praise God. Pray for yourself to understand. Pray that I would understand. Take notes. Take notes. You know, I don't really like taking notes, but if I don't take notes, then probably I'll fall asleep. It doesn't matter who it is. If it's John MacArthur, John Piper, Steve Lawson, Al, even Al Mohler. If I don't take notes, I'll fall asleep. Take notes. Now, here's a, here's a, here's a hard one. Read through Hebrews once a month. Colossians 3.16, let the word of Christ and dwell within you richly. Now, I can't command you like it's from God, read Hebrew, the book of Hebrews once a month. I can say, read, read your Bible, but I, I would suggest for the next three months, read through the book of Hebrews once a month. That would mean, let's say, take half a chapter each day. Take half a chapter of Hebrews each day and read it. So read half of chapter 1, then the next half. And then read half of chapter 2, and then after that, the next day, read the next half. Right? It's 13 chapters, so that will be 26 days. That To read half a chapter, it might take three minutes. Can you do that? You can say, Lord, open my eyes. That would take maybe three seconds. And then for the next two minutes and 30 seconds, read half of a chapter. Can, I, I've been doing that in the mornings. Number seven. Get a little commentary by, I mentioned his name, by Kruger or Worsby. Michael Kruger, you can talk to me afterwards. Or Warren Worsby. Warren Worsby has the B books. B books. I'm not sure what Hebrews is. It's not B wise. I, I've forgotten what it is. Maybe it's be enduring or be believing. I'm not sure. Warren Worsby, Michael Kruger, Al Mohler also has a, a good book and the Exalting Christ Commentary series. I mentioned these three, uh, Al Mohler, Michael Kruger, Warren Worsby, because they're smaller books. They're not technical. And at the end, sometimes they have application questions. Get one and just read it. How about open when I'm preaching? Tom, you're wrong. Al Mohler says this. Kruger says this. That's awesome. Awesome. Afterwards, we'll talk about it. Michael Kruger, Warren Wisby, Al Mohler. You can talk to me afterwards. And then, study and teach it. Man, start a men's meeting. Call it Hebrews. And study the book of Hebrews. Woman, you can have Shebrews. You can get together, have Shebrews, Mebrews. Have a little Bible study meeting. Again, Colossians 3.16 says teaching and instructing and singing it to one another. Teach your kids. Start a prison ministry. Right? It talks about in Hebrews 13, they went to visit the prisoners. I've been part of the prison ministry for four years. We had one uh, a couple of years ago. Find a place to teach it. You can teach your kids. Wives gently and humbly teach your husband. Maybe he doesn't get it. Help him. Teach him the word. Humbly, carefully, meekly. Teach your children through the book of Hebrews. Teach your neighbors. And then finally, apply what you learn. The the best way to learn is to do it, right? So... When I came in, I asked David, Paul, like, how's it going in the police academy? What are they teaching you? So he got me in, in, a, in a wrist lock, hand behind my back, palm up. Ow. Do, do I know? I had him do it like three times on me. Can I do it now? No, I, I don't. I'm going to have to have him do it to me again, and then I'm going to have to do it to one of you. And then I'll know how to do it. 
Unless you really do it, you won't what? Know it. You can talk all about fishing and read all kinds of books on fishing, but and that and actually, unless you actually get the fishing rod in your hands and cast it, you don't know. And that's why I think we have Hebrews eleven. Is walk by faith. By God's grace, I, I pray that there will be a reign of peace and quiet for the next 500 years on earth. I've also prayed that Christ would come back in my lifetime. So, it very well could be that there's not going to be peace and quiet. It's hard, as hard as it was uh, two or three years ago, if you read the book of Revelation, that was what happened two or three years ago was nothing. It was nothing. Absolutely nothing. And so life could get even more difficult. What then do we do? We stick with Christ. We have a better possession. And so we apply what we learn to the book of Hebrews. I have faith and I have a better possession in Christ. He is better than anything and everyone. I choose Christ. And I'm going to focus my faith on him and him alone. How can we get the most out of the book of Hebrews and not treat it just like some ancient book from the past? Receive it as God's message. Understand, ultimately, you know, there's like, who, who's the human author? No, God wrote it. God wrote it. And then third, come to any message, but especially the book of Hebrews with, what should I do? What, what should I do? What does God want me to do? What does God want you to do with the message that you've heard this morning? Lord, thank you for the kind attention with these wonderful people. We went over time. Thank you, Lord, for their kind attention. Pray, Lord, that you would motivate all of us to do what it says in in Isaiah. I think it's 66, verse 2, is that we tremble before your word. That we have awe and adoration before your word, Lord. Because... It's the word of Christ. Lord, we thank you and we praise you for Christ's sake. Amen.